Blog Talk Radio.
and domestic policies. And there are reports uh, that the West African state of Mali is seeking to hire a Russian private security firm to deal uh, with the situation inside the country. In the second hour, we continue to review the United Nations General Assembly 76th session held in New York City over the last week. Uh, there are presentations uh, we'll present uh, from uh, several states, uh, including South Africa, Zimbabwe, Kenya, and Namibia. Finally, we examine uh, some of the pressing issues in Africa as, as well as internationally. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week. I'm <laughs> 
Welcome back, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, uh, September 26, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And that was uh, music uh, from the East African state of Kenya, uh, music from the 1970s. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in the Pan-African Newswire for today. More than uh, 100 officials of Tunisia's Islamic Party, Hanada, announced their resignations uh, yesterday to protest the choices of the movement's leadership in confronting the North African country's political crisis. Uh, the split within the ranks of Hanada comes amid deep political crisis in Tunisia. In July, President Kais Saeed uh, decided to sack the country's prime minister, parliament, and assume executive authority, saying it was because of a national emergency. His critics called it a coup. In a statement released uh, Saturday, 113 officials from Inada, including lawmakers and former ministers, said they had resigned. This is definitive. An irrevocable decision, Samir Dulu, an Inada lawmaker and former minister from 2011 to 2014, told the Associated Press. Dulu said the decision to resign was linked to the, quote, impossibility of reforming the party from the inside, unquote, uh, because of decisions being made by the head of the party, Rashid Gunashi, and his entourage. He also noted that Inada, uh, the largest party in parliament, had failed to counter Saeed's actions. Earlier this week, uh, Saeed issued presidential decrees bolstering the already near-total power he granted himself uh, just two months ago. Wednesday's decree includes the continuing suspension of the parliament's powers, the suspension of all lawmakers' immunity from prosecution, and the freeze on lawmakers' salaries. They also stated Saeed's intention from now on to rule by presidential decree alone and ignore uh, parts of the Constitution. Uh, Laws will not go through the parliament whose powers are frozen, granting him near unlimited power. Saeed said his July decision was needed to save the country amid unrest over financial troubles and the government's handling of Tunisia's coronavirus crisis. And in the East African uh, Horn of Africa state of Somalia, a vehicle laden with explosives rammed into cars and trucks at a checkpoint leading to the entrance of the presidential palace in Somalia, killing at least eight people. Uh, This occurred yesterday. The checkpoint is the one used by Somalia's president and prime minister on their way to and from the airport in Somalia's capital of Mogadishu. Nine other people were wounded in the bombing, uh, police spokesman Abdi Fatah Adam Hassan said. Title-linked uh, al-Shabaab extremist group has claimed responsibility. The group often carries out such attacks uh, in the capital. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. In the United States, uh, President Joe Biden is rapidly losing support among critical groups in his political base, and some of his core campaign promises are faltering. It's raising concerns among Democrats that the voters who put him in office may feel less enthusiastic about returning to the polls in next year's midterm elections. In just the last past week, the push to change the nation's immigration laws 
and create a path to citizenship for young immigrants brought illegally to the country as children face a serious setback on Capitol Hill. Bipartisan negotiations to overhaul policing collapsed and searing images of Haiti's uh, migrants uh, being mistreated at the U.S.-Mexico border undermined Biden's pledge of humane treatment for those seeking to enter the United States. Taken together, the developments threatened uh, to disillusion African Americans, Latinos, young people, and independents, all of whom played a vital role in building a coalition that gave Democrats control of Congress and the White House uh, last year. That's creating a sense of urgency to broker some type of agreement between the party's progressive and moderate wings to move forward uh, with a $3.5 trillion package that would fundamentally reshape the nation's social programs. The failure to do so, uh, party strategist warns, could devastate Democrats in the 2022 vote and raise questions about Biden's path to re-election if he decides to seek a second term. Quoting uh, Benjamin Franklin, if they don't hang together, they'll hang separately. That was according to James uh, Carville, a veteran Democratic strategist. They've got to get something done to have a chance. Despite such concerns, it's likely too early for the Democrats to panic, uh, while Biden's approval ratings have taken a hit. For instance, they are significantly better than Donald Trump's were at the same time in his presidency. With the midterms more than a year away, Biden and his party have time to course correct, according uh, to some. And uh, finally, uh, in the West African state of Mali, uh, there are reports uh, amid uh, the coup government, uh, which has been in power now for more than a year, they overthrew a civilian uh, elected uh, government. The uh, coup leaders uh, inside of Mali, it is reported, are seeking to uh, hire a Russian security firm uh, to help uh, with the security of uh, Mali. And, of course, this is uh, something uh, that has drawn uh, ire uh, not only throughout the economic community of West African states, but also uh, internationally as well. Uh, the situation in Mali remains tense. Uh, despite the intervention of ECOWAS and the African Union to try to bring about some type of transitional uh, dispensation, of course, uh, this has not necessarily uh, been functioning uh, in the appropriate manner. Of course, uh, Mali uh, is a mineral-rich state, but at the same time, the people are heavily exploited and oppressed uh, as a result of the legacy of enslavement, colonialism, and neocolonialism. Now, the Russian's foreign minister says as Mali's turn towards a private Russian company, Don, uh, on a legitimate basis, insists Moscow is not involved. According to reports uh, by Mali's military-dominated government, it is close to hiring 1,000 Wagner paramilitaries to help it in the fight against the armed groups. Now, Mali has asked Russian private companies to boost security in the conflict-torn country. Uh, Moscow uh, confirmed just uh, two days ago as the Malian leader accused France of abandoning Bamako by preparing a large troop drawdown. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said yesterday uh, that private uh, Russian military contractors have, quote, a legitimate, unquote, right to be in Mali because they were invited by the country's transitional government. But he insisted that the Russian government was not involved. 
Meanwhile, uh, in his address uh, to the United Nations General Assembly, Mali's uh, Prime Minister, Shoguel Gokala Maiga, uh, accused France of abandoning his country with his, quote, unilateral, unquote, decision to withdraw troops, with France preparing uh, to reduce its military presence in the Sahel region. The Malian government estimated that, quote, its own capacities would be insufficient in the absence of external support, unquote, and initiated the discussions Lavrov told reporters on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly, uh, the 76th uh, session uh, that's uh, been going on now over the last week. He said that this is an activity which has been carried out on a legitimate basis. Uh, we have nothing to do with that. Lavrov's comments came after the European Union foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, warned uh, that the bloc ties with Mali could be seriously affected if he allows Russian private military contractors from the controversial Wagner Group to operate in Mali. According to reports, uh, Mali's military-dominated government in Bamako, the capital, is close to hiring 1,000 of Wagner's paramilitaries to help it in the fight against armed groups <clears throat> that uh, reportedly have links with al-Qaeda and ISIL, or ISIS. France, uh, which deployed uh, more than 5,000 soldiers in the Sahel region under its Operation Burkhan mission, uh, but has pledged a major troop drawdown. <clears throat> France has warned uh, Mali uh, that hiring uh, Wagner's fighters uh, would isolate the country internationally. Germany, which also has troops in Mali, also says it will reconsider its deployment uh, should the Malian government strike a deal with Wagner. Russian uh, paramilitaries, private security instructors, and companies have grown increasingly influential in parts of Africa in recent years, particularly in the conflict-ridden Central African Republic, CAR, where the United Nations has accused Wagner's contractors of committing abuses. Uh, Russia admits having deployed, quote, instructors, unquote, to uh, the CAR, but says they are not active in fighting. It also insists there are no Russian paramilitaries in Libya, despite the Western claims to the contrary. The French defense minister declined to comment on Lavrov's comments. Addressing the United Nations General Assembly, Maiga said his government was justified to seek other partners to help, quote, fill the gap, which will certainly result from the withdrawal of Burkina uh, in the north of the country. The new situation resulting from the end of Operation Burkani puts Mali uh, before a fiat accompli abandoning us mid-flight to a certain extent, and it leads us to explore pathways and means to better ensure our security autonomously with other partners, the Malian representatives said. Already battling armed groups in the country's north and center, Mali slid into the political turmoil last year when its military seized power from President Ibrahim Bubaka Keita in a coup d'etat. Under the threat of sanctions, the military then appointed an interim civilian government tasked with stirring the country back uh, to democratic rule. But the powerful Colonel Asimi Guaita overthrew the leaders of that interim government in May this year in a second coup and was later declared interim president himself, drawing international condemnation. Uh, soldiers are due to leave some bases by the end of the year, and French troops in the Sahel could fall from about 5,000 to currently 2,500 or 3,000 by 2023. The United Nations, which has some 15,000 peacekeepers in Mali, 
has also expressed concern about the possible involvement of Wagner's fighters. Following his press conference, Lavrov sharply criticized Paris and Berlin during his address to the annual General Assembly, accusing them of wanting to impose their vision of the world on the rest of the planet without considering different options. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and in concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. Uh, The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The program can be shared with other potential listeners via emails, blogs and websites, and social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. This is Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program.
the voice and uh, music of uh, Phyllis Hyman, uh, No One Can Love You More Than I Do. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. Uh, right now we want to move into uh, some of the speeches uh, from the United Nations General Assembly 76th session uh, that was held uh, over the last week. And uh, we're going to listen to Zimbabwe President Emerson Mnangagwa. Let's listen in. The Assembly will now hear the statement of the distinguished representative of Zimbabwe to introduce an address by the Head of State. You have the floor. Mr. President, it is my singular honor and privilege to introduce the pre-recorded statement by His Excellency Dr. Emerson Dambuzom Nangagwa, the President of the Republic of Zimbabwe, to the general debate of the 7th, 6th session of the United Nations General Assembly. I thank you. Your Excellency Abdullah Shahid, President of the 76th session of the General Assembly. Your Excellency Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations. Majesties, Excellencies, Heads of State and Government. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me, Your Excellency, to extend my heartfelt congratulations to you on your election as the President of the 76th Session of the General Assembly. We are confident that your vast experience will help advance the implementation of the global agenda during this session. I also pay tribute to the outgoing president, Mr. Volker Boske, for providing outstanding leadership during the 75th session at a time when the COVID-19 pandemic negatively impacted the work of our organization. Allow me, Mr. President, to congratulate the United Nations Secretary General, Mr. Antonio Guterres, on his election for a second term. My country stands ready to work closely with him and other member states to achieve our shared goal of a better life for all. The 76th session is convening against the backdrop of the persistent COVID-19 pandemic. However, all hope is not lost. Drawing from the collective milestones achieved to date, enhanced multilateralism and the unity of purpose remain critical in mitigating this global health emergency. The hoarding and inequitable distribution with the resultant uneven vaccination patterns across the globe is not acceptable. Vaccine nationalism is a self-defeating and a contrary 
to the mantra that no one is safe until everyone is safe. Whether in the global north or south, rich or poor, old or young, all peoples of the world deserve access to vaccines. The pandemic has demonstrated the urgent need to build resilient economies and societies that are able to cope in times of shocks and hazards. The pandemic has necessitated the need for us to build back better and greener to emerge stronger. The theme for the 76th session and their court Building resilience through hope to recover from COVID-19, rebuild sustainably, respond to the needs of the planet, respect the rights of people, and revitalize the United Nations, resonates well with the needs of the world at this juncture. Together, we can indeed conquer the challenges facing humanity and realize a sustainable future that leaves no one behind. We must restore dignity and hope, particularly for our women, youth, and the vulnerable, who look to us for inspiration and assurance that their well-being and future remains at the core of all our endeavors. Mr. President, this year's high-level meetings mark important dialogues at the heart of sustainable development in its three dimensions, the Biodiversity Summit and the second Global Sustainable Transport Conference, as well as the Nutrition for Growth Summit all lined up this year complement our efforts towards a healthy planet. Green energy is an enabler for building back better and is crucial to the direct achievement of SDGs while playing a key role in mitigating climate change. The high-level dialogue on energy sets the stage for exploring viable, renewable, and green energy solutions. As we do so, let us link economic growth with the accelerated transition to net zero emission for a climate-resilient future. My country and the parts of Southern African region continue to experience the devastating impacts of climate change, ranging from cyclone-induced floods, recurrent droughts, and the shorter rain seasons, water summers and the colder winters. This is in spite of the fact that our continent is the least uh, polluter. COP26 in Glasgow must therefore be about action and the fulfillment 
of decisions of the past. In addition, concrete financial support is essential to combat climate change beyond the mere rhetoric. The 2030 Agenda remains our shared roadmap to achieve the future we all want. For us in Zimbabwe, eradicating poverty and eliminating hunger remains a top priority. Climate change and resultant erratic weather patterns, growing populations coupled with the effects of the pandemic on food supply chains, demand a shift from our traditional food production, processing, distribution and consumption patterns. My government has established a firm foundation for sustained food production through the land distribution program as well as increased support for communal and smallholder farmers. This has led to broader and sustainable home incomes for the majority of people living in rural areas who now contribute to the increased levels of household and national food and nutrition security. The United Nations Food Systems Summit provides a welcome platform for new actions, innovative solutions, and the plans to deliver progress across all of the SDGs and the Paris Agreement. Mr. President, Zimbabwe launched Vision 2030, aimed at improving the lives of our people while sustainably managing the environment and ensuring that no one is left behind. The pursuit of this inclusive and transformative vision has seen the creation of more decent jobs, reduction of inequalities, and access to quality social services. Expanded new economic opportunities for all citizens are yielding positive results across all sectors of the economy. The multi-pronged reforms we are undertaking have seen us being one of the fastest movers in the World Bank Easy of Doing Business Index. Zimbabwe presented the second voluntary national review during the July 2021 high-level political forum. Remarkable progress has been registered towards universal health coverage and the creation of a competence-based education system which evolves innovation for a knowledge-driven economy. Higher agricultural production and productivity through improved land and water utilization as well as the adoption of climate smart agriculture is being promoted. The voluntary national review further highlighted progress made in supporting productive employment, decent work, 
and the formalization of the informal sector, my administration continues to entrench democracy, constitutionalism, and the rule of law through sound legislation as well as fair and impartial administration of justice. This is indicative of our strides to achieve sustainable development by 2030. We remain available to share experiences for mutual benefit. My government recognizes and applauds the complementary role that the private sector, development partners, civil society, organizations, and other stakeholders play in the realization of SDGs in Zimbabwe. In speaking of challenges faced in achieving SDGs, the COVID-19 pandemic has increased the vulnerability of our economy which is already crippled by the adverse effects of unilateral illegal sanctions imposed on my country. Sanctions have further worsened our capacity to respond to the pandemic for the good of our citizens. I am pleased to highlight that my government has approved the visit in October 2021 to Zimbabwe by the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the negative impact of the unilateral coercive measures on the enjoyment of human rights. This will afford the Special Rapporteur an opportunity to witness firsthand the devastating impact of these illegal sanctions on my country. We reiterate our call for the urgent and conditional removal of these illegal sanctions. Zimbabwe remains grateful to the Sadiq region, the African Union and other progressive nations who continue to stand with us and add their voices to the call for the unconditional removal of these unwarranted and unjustified illegal sanctions. We are committed to engagement and re-engagement and peaceful coexistence and to be a friend to all and an enemy to none as we build equal partnerships for win-win cooperation and a common future. Mr. President, the state of global peace and security is a cause for concern. Terrorism, illicit flow of small arms and light weapons, transnational organized crime, cyber crime, and illicit financial flows, among other aspects, continue to impede our march towards the realization of sustainable peace, security, and stability. The recent acts of terrorism in our Sadiq region are constant reminders of our vulnerability to this scourge, which has become 
one of Africa's greatest security threats. African nations need to be capacitated to effectively counter this threat along with the Continental Flagship Program on, and I quote, silencing the guns through African solutions for African problems, end of quote. As we commemorate the International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons during this high-level week, let us be mindful of the need to build trust based on international law to realize the shared goal of a world free of nuclear weapons. We remain alarmed by the global rise in racial tensions, violence and hate crimes. Twenty years after the Deben Declaration and the Program of Action, the socio-economic and political structures that encourage, promote and justify racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and the related intolerances must be torn down. The recent adoption of the resolution establishing the permanent forum of people of African descent is commendable. The forum must inspire all of us to build a world which harnesses our racial diversities for global peace, harmony, and sustainable development. Respecting and upholding human rights is the obligation of all states as enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations. Equally, self-determination and independence are fundamental rights that should be enjoyed by all peoples. We therefore call for the full implementation of United Nations resolutions to end all forms of colonialism and occupation. Mr. President, based on the principles of sovereign equality and independence of states, the United Nations organization must be fair, just, and anchored on multilateralism, inclusivity, and transparency to best serve the collective interests of all members. The reform of the Security Council must be expedited. Equally, my country supports the ongoing efforts to revitalize the General Assembly. The encroachment by other United Nations organs on the mandate and competence of the General Assembly is of concern. Finally, the increased challenges facing the world today call for a stronger solidarity and a renewed commitment to strengthen multilateralism as a viable mechanism for achieving and maintaining peace, security, equality, justice and sustainable economic development and the protection of our environment. I thank you.
uh, on behalf of the General Assembly, I wish to thank His Excellency, the President of the Republic of Zimbabwe, for his statement. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the President of uh, the Republic of Zimbabwe. Uh, in his address uh, before uh, the United Nations General Assembly 76th session uh, that has been taking place over the last week uh, in New York City, he had a pre-recorded message as uh, many heads of states and representatives delivered, uh, of course, uh, due to the pandemic uh, that has swept the world over the last uh, 18 months. And uh, right now we want to move to neighboring South Africa, uh, where President Cyril Ramaphosa delivered uh, his message as well uh, at the UN General Assembly 76th session. Let's listen to the President of South Africa. I now give the floor to the distinguished representative of South Africa to introduce an address by the Head of State. Uh, Mr. President, Secretary General, Excellencies, it's my honor and privilege to introduce the President of the Republic of South Africa, His Excellency Cyril Matamela Ramaphosa, to present South Africa's national statement to this general debate of the 76th session of the United Nations General Assembly. I thank you, Mr. President. President of the 76th session of the UN General Assembly, Mr. Abdullah Shahid, Secretary General, Mr. Antonio Guterres, Excellencies, Heads of State and Government, colleagues and friends. We join today's General Assembly debate from around the world. The COVID-19 pandemic has forever changed the nature of multilateral engagement, of diplomacy, of business, and of basic human interaction. And yet, even as we are separated by the expanses of geography and distance, the noble ideals of fellowship, solidarity, and cooperation stand firm. They are the bedrock on which the United Nations was formed 76 years ago, and they have been our guide as we confront the worst global health emergency in over a century. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused great devastation around the world. Millions of lives have been lost and livelihoods have been destroyed. It has shaken our sense of well-being and security. Yet the strong bonds of solidarity between nations have enabled us to overcome great challenges. It was through multilateral solidarity support and cooperation between member states that countries in need were able to access medical equipment and supplies. In dealing with COVID-19 pandemic, it is generally agreed that vaccines are the greatest defense that humanity has against the ravages of this pandemic. It is therefore a great concern that the global community has not sustained the principles of solidarity and cooperation in securing equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines. 
It is an indictment on humanity that more than 82% of the world's vaccine doses have been acquired by wealthy countries, while less than 1% has gone to low-income countries. Unless we address this as a matter of urgency, the pandemic will last much longer and new mutations of the virus will emerge and spread. South Africa reaffirms its call for fair and equitable distribution of vaccines. We urge all member states to support the proposal for a temporary waiver of certain provisions of the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights to allow more countries, particularly low- and middle-income countries, to produce COVID-19 vaccines. In this interconnected world, no country is safe until every country is safe. We need to prepare now for future pandemics and work with greater determination towards the goal of universal health coverage. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, we must increase investment towards the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals by providing low-income countries with a means of implementation. In this respect, the G20 Debt Standstill Initiative is a welcome response to the fiscal and liquidity challenges faced by least developed economies. The agreement on the allocation of $650 billion in special drawing rights is significant, but it is insufficient to meet the extent of the enormous need. South Africa therefore reiterates its call for 25% of the total allocation amounting to around $165 billion to be made available to the African continent. Mr. President, climate change is an existential crisis for the entire world, yet poor countries are particularly vulnerable. Although we bear the least responsibility for causing climate change, African countries are among those that carry the greatest burden and cost. For the forthcoming COP26 in Glasgow, to respond adequately to the crisis we face, we need to see greater ambition and progress on mitigation, adaptation and the means of implementation. COP26 must therefore launch a formal program of work on the implementation of the global goal on adaptation. The pandemic has been a stark reminder of our mutual dependency and that instability in one region of the world inevitably impacts its neighbors. That is why we seek to enhance the relationship between the UN and the African Union in maintaining peace, financing, peace-building efforts, and advancing post-conflict reconstruction and development. South Africa continues with its efforts to contribute to international peace and security 
through our membership of the Peace Building Commission and our continued engagement in UN peacekeeping. The right of the Palestinian people to self-determination has been raised in this assembly for almost as long as this body has been in existence. We raise it again today, not because we are bound by practice to do so, but because we resolutely believe that there shall be no peace and no justice until the Palestinian people are free from occupation and are able to exercise the rights for which this United Nation stands for. We have a responsibility as the nations of the world to spare no effort in finding a just, lasting and peaceful solution, one that is based on internationally agreed parameters enshrined in the relevant UN resolutions. We reiterate our position that the people of Western Sahara have the right to self-determination in line with the relevant African Union decisions and UN Security Council resolutions. South Africa further affirms its solidarity with the Cuban people and calls for the lifting of economic embargo that has caused untold damage to the country's economy and people. Mr. President, this year marks 12 years since the start of the intergovernmental negotiations process and 16 years since the World Summit of 2005, where world leaders unanimously agreed on early reform of the Security Council. We have not honored this undertaking. South Africa reiterates its call for urgent reform and for a move to text-based negotiations through which an agreement can ultimately be reached. We must address the underrepresentation of the African continent in the UN system and ensure that the voice of the African continent wherein 1.3 billion people reside and the global south in general is strengthened in the multilateral system. Concurrent with achieving equitable geographical representation in the UN, we must also address the question of gender parity. Yesterday we marked the 20th anniversary of the adoption of the Durban Declaration and Program of Action at the World Conference Against Racism that was held in South Africa. This remains the international community's blueprint for action to fight racism and other forms of intolerance. We are bound by a common responsibility to fight both the legacy of past racism and the manifestation of racism in the present. Racism like sexism, like xenophobia, like homophobia, demeans all of us. It undermines our humanity and stifles our efforts to build a world that is rooted in tolerance, in respect, and in human rights.
we must use this anniversary to renew our commitment to combating racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerances wherever they are found. Mr. President, the challenges we face are immense. We have to drive the global economic recovery. We have to implement the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. We have to advance gender equality and the empowerment of women. We have to address climate change, maintain peace and security, and protect societies most marginalized. Above all, we must close the wounds of poverty, inequality, and underdevelopment that are preventing societies from realizing their full potential. This can only be done within the framework of a revitalized and reformed multilateral system with a strong and capable United Nations at its center. At this defining moment, this General Assembly of the nations of the world is once again called upon to inspire to guide and to lead. The United Nations stands as a beacon of hope for all who dream of a better world. Let us together, with the United Nations as our instrument, write a new history for humankind, one of equality, freedom, fundamental rights, and shared prosperity for all leaving no one behind. I thank you. On behalf of the General Assembly, I wish to thank the President of the Republic of South Africa for the statement just made. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, President Sir Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa delivering his address as a contribution uh, to uh, the United Nations General Assembly 76th session, uh, which occurred uh, just this last past week. And his uh, presentation as well uh, was done uh, in a pre-recorded manner. And uh, right now we want to move to neighboring Republic of Namibia. Uh, President Haj Ginga uh, delivered an address as well uh, to uh, the United Nations General Assembly 76th session just this last past week. Let's listen. The Assembly will hear an address by His Excellency Hage Gambo, President of the Republic of Namibia. I request protocol to escort His Excellency. On behalf of General Assembly, I have the honor to welcome to the United Nations His Excellency Hage Gambo. President of the Republic of Namibia, and to invite him to address the Assembly. Thank you, Mr. President. Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, Namibia joins other member states in congratulating you on your election as President of 76th Session of United Nations General Assembly 
which is convened under the theme, quote, Building Resilience Through Hope, Recover from COVID-19, Rebuild Sustainability, Respond to the Needs of the Planet, Respect the Rights of the People, Revitalize the United Nations, unquote. We also wish to commend the Secretary General, His Excellency Guterres, for his profound and moving statement highlighting the many challenges the world is faced with, while imploring world leaders to act now to solve these problems. Your Excellency, we have heard your clarion call loud and clear. Mr. President, for the second year in a row, the world finds itself engulfed by the dark cloud of COVID-19 pandemic which continues to claim thousands of lives daily. However, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Global efforts to develop vaccines have been a scientific victory and testament to human ingenuity. In just under a year, the unexpected has happened. Several different vaccines have been tested and produced to be delivered to millions around the world. Unfortunately, the global rollout of the vaccines has not been impervious to the scourges of inequality. Vaccine apartheid has resulted in significant disparities in terms of vaccine rollout and availability, with many people in developing countries left out. It is a pity that we have a situation where in some countries, citizens are at the stage of receiving booster shots, while in other countries, many are still waiting to receive their first doses of vaccines. Let us bear in mind that, quote unquote, no one is safe unless we are all safe. The COVID-19 has impacted poorer countries more acutely and unevenly faced with high levels of debt and no access to finance, developing countries are struggling to mitigate the severe effects of the crisis. Namibia, however, aims to deploy innovative approaches to ensure sustainable economic development in this volatile period of COVID-19 pandemic and climate change. Given our renewable resources such as solar, wind, as well as the ocean, Namibia has decided to prioritize the development of green and blue economies. Furthermore, we are also well positioned through our recent membership to the high-level panel on ocean stability, sustainability to design and champion a sustainable blue economy, which will grow our economic base and create as much needed jobs while also tackling climate change. Additionally, Namibia has made progress in incubating renewable energy assets in the form of green hydrogen and ammonia as part of its energy order to enable us to act in the best interest of our planet and its citizens. To this end, to this extent, Africa has come a long way 
from the days of first wave of African leaders who paved the way towards independence. These leaders were extraordinary personalities who definitely forced us to fight for our independence. This first wave of African leaders were followed by second wave of African leaders who were caught up in a Cold War confusion and therefore one-party state and military coups. Following this period of global conflict in form of a Cold War, decided in Africa having coups. However, having emerged from the demilitarized period, the third wave of African leaders have ushered in an era defined by democratic elections and term limits. I'm talking about first wave of African leaders were our founding fathers, second wave of African leaders were caught up in the Cold War confusion, and the third wave of African leaders are those who are now in power, who come through regular elections and are abiding to term limits. However, recently we had a setback in two countries. But unlike in the past where the other people are going to tell Africans what to do, it was Africans, the ECOWAS and AU, who decided and ostracized them and demanding that there must be a constitutional order in return. That's now the new Africa that we believe in. New Africa which believes in constitutional order. Mr. President, Namibia stands firm in its belief that there is no room for discrimination of any kind in this world. In this regard, we remain committed to the implementation of Durban Declaration and Program of Action, which embodies our firm commitment as an international community to rid the world from the scourges of racism, xenophobia, and related intolerance, intolerance at national, regional, and international level. The question of Palestine now into its 73rd year after Nakba remains unresolved. On this crucial issue, Namibia wishes to amplify the statement by Secretary General Guterres, who explicitly stated that leaders on both sides should resume a meaningful dialogue, recognizing the two-state two solution as the only pathway to a just and comprehensive Please. Similarly, it, is now, it has now been nearly 50 years, and still the people of Western Sahara are waiting for their right to exercise their right to freedom and independence. Namibia welcomes the appointment of His Excellency Alexander Avango, the Secretary General, as his special representative for Western Sahara. We hope new special representative will devote his full attention to the matter to enable the people of Western Sahara to have the opportunity to exercise their right to self-determination without further delay. In the same vein, Mr. President, in accordance with the resolutions adopted by this August Assembly, we call on an end of the economic commercial and financial embargo 
of the United States against Cuba. The people of Cuba deserve to pursue the developmental aspirations and attain economic freedom. We call on President Biden, who was an invaluable member of President Obama's administration, which sought a rapprochement between Washington and Havana to rekindle that spirit of, of respect and peace between USA and Cuba, which President Obama pursued. Mr. President, Namibia is committed to the reform of the United Nations Security Council. As a member of the African Union Committee of Ten, we therefore call on all countries to support the reform of the UN Security Council in line with the Ezulimi Consensus and the Declaration. Mr. President, as we continue to build back better, we have a collective responsibility to ensure that participation of women at all levels of governance and economic activity is a symbol of freedom and equality in society. Namibia believes that women's participation and representation is central to equitable and sustainable development. Thus, Namibia continues to advocate for increased gender equality around the world. And we set ourselves the challenge of leading by example in our policies, programs, and actions. Similarly, we take cognizance of the fact that our youth are the backbones of the global village and the custodians of the keys to humanity's future. Therefore, Namibia remains committed to supporting the development of our young people and promoting greater youth participation in all areas of society, since they have a critical role to play in promoting global peace and development. To illustrate our commitment to youth empowerment, I have in my delegation two young ladies who are all, both of them, deputy ministers. We are under 30 years. One is about only 25 years old now. They, together with their peers, are the future. Mr. President, we face the most critical period in human history. Global peace is at stake. Human dignity is at stake. And the future of our global village is at stake. As we meet in this global parliament of humanity, we are called upon by the citizens of this world to craft a collective way forward that will ensure that we recover from the devastation of COVID-19 and craft and chart a way forward towards a brighter future. Although the task may seem daunting, through unity of purpose will prevail. For where there is unity, there is hope to overcome COVID-19. Where there is unity, people can return to rebuilding sustainably. Where there is unity, we can respond to the needs of the planet and respect the rights of all people. Indeed, through unity, we'll revitalize the United Nations, transforming it into a bastion of global democracy that will save the world from the scourge of war and reaffirm faith in the fundamental human rights, dignity, and wealth of 
each and every human being on this planet. I say always, one Namibia, one nation. And I say, one Africa, one continent. And I say, one world, one universe. Thank you very much. I thank the President of the Republic uh, of Namibia for the presentation he has just uh, given. I ask protocol now to accompany His Excellency. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the President of the Republic of Namibia, Hodge Gengar, speaking uh, at uh, the United Nations General Assembly uh, 76th session. Uh, which uh, began uh, earlier this week. Right now, we'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And we're going to go back uh, to the United Nations General Assembly, the 76th session. Uh, in this segment, we're going to hear uh, the President of the Republic of Kenya, Uhuru Kenyatta. I now give the floor to the representative of Kenya to introduce an address by the head of state. Your Excellency, Mr. President, Excellencies, distinguished delegates, it is my privilege and honor as the Cabinet Secretary for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Kenya to present the pre-recorded video statement by His Excellency, Honorable Uhuru Kenyatta, President of the Republic of Kenya, during the general debate of the 76th session of the United Nations General Assembly. I thank you. Your Excellency Abdullah Saeed, President of the 76th session of the General Assembly, Your Excellency Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, let me begin by saying how delighted I am to join you today in this 76th session of the General Assembly. And I want to take this very early opportunity to congratulate you, Mr. President, on your election to preside over the 76th session. And I want to assure you of Kenya's full support during your tenure. The theme of this year's session, Building Resilience Through Hope to Recover from COVID-19, has inspired my address to you today. Indeed, our Secretary General, in his report to our common agenda, observed, and I quote him, humanity faces a stark an urgent choice, breakdown or breakthrough. The world needs to take seriously this warning from the Secretary General. In doing this, I urge the following immediate multilateral actions. The first is that we must put equitable global vaccine access at the core of building back better from this COVID-19 pandemic. And the second is that we need to provide tangible climate financial support to developing countries and ensure that a significant portion of green manufacturing is located in developing countries. Third, we must align our conflict resolution tools to the strategic shift in threats to regional and international peace and security. Fourth, we must strengthen the competence of states to manage diversity and regional trust between citizens and institutions 
and, been, and between citizens and their leaders. As of a week ago, over 5,000 Kenyans had succumbed to COVID-19. We mourn these Kenyans together with the over 4.7 million lives that have been lost around the world. The pandemic's devastating impact on global travel, tourism, our supply chains, investment, has caused the deepest economic recession in nearly a century. We here in Kenya responded swiftly and boldly to contain the pandemic. And as a result, the human toll, though most distressing, pales in comparison to other parts in the world. While we also undertook measures to cushion different sectors of our economy, the economic pain has been pronounced. Now is the time to rebuild. And to rebuild successfully requires a worldwide response in confidence and investment to enable production and consumption to bounce back to pre-pandemic levels. The surest way to build that confidence is by making vaccines available, available to the world in an equitable and accessible manner. And that, sadly, does not happen to be the case today. The asymmetry in the supply of vaccines reflects a multilateral system that is unfortunately in urgent need of repair. At the heart of the global effort to building back better, we must make concerted structural changes that should enable a quantum increase in investment and technology transfers. And this, not as charity, but instead driven by enlightened self-interests and solidarity. A fast-developing Africa will offer the entire world the benefit of its demographic dividend of youth and vast investment opportunities. Africa can become an engine of sustainable global growth but also as an exporter of peace, stability, and transformative prosperity. Your Excellencies, many leaders have noted on previous occasions the need to deliver concurrently economic recovery linked to climate change action. As COP26 approaches, we should aim to make clear commitments that contribute to developing country investments in green manufacturing and infrastructure that we require. A green building back better that delivers jobs as well as shared prosperity will win 
the support of the young generation and intensify the drive towards climate change action. Kenya is ready to become a leading green industry country. We have mounted a strong climate change response. We have submitted an updated national determined contribution plan that aims to lower greenhouse emissions by 32% by the year 2030. Kenya also has a green economy strategy and implementation plan 2016-2030, which will enable us to achieve a higher economic growth as well as supporting a low carbon development path. We too here in Kenya have also identified a range of ocean-based adaptation priorities to integrate ocean-based climate solutions with global responses to climate change. We look forward to co-hosting the second United Nations Oceans Conference with Portugal in late June 2022 to galvanize commitments and partnerships that will promote ambitious global ocean action and scale up investments in our blue economy. This will follow Kenya's successful co-hosting of the first global sustainable blue economy conference that we held in 2018 with Japan, Canada, amongst other global partners. Mr. President, Kenya is blessed with a youthful and indeed well-educated and productive population that has managed to build one of the most vibrant mixed economies on the African continent. We are implementing ambitious programs to prepare our country to produce decent and rewarding jobs for these young people. Our investments in road, air, and port infrastructure, as well as critical healthcare facilities throughout our country are the most extensive and ambitious in our history as a nation. We have also delivered a national competency-based curriculum and on universal access to schooling, which will further boost the competitiveness of our workforce. Indeed, I am also simultaneously focusing on the immediate needs of our people. We have targeted 3.3 million households across our country that are most at risk and in the process achieved a 50% reduction in the number of food insecure Kenyans. By next year, we will have achieved a 27% reduction in malnutrition among children under the age of five, created 1,000 agro-processing SMEs, and 600,000 new jobs. We also have recorded a 48% increase in our agricultural contribution. Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen,
as the President in Office of the African, Caribbean, and Pacific States Organization, I convened and chaired an extraordinary intercessional virtual summit at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in June last year. We also made the Nairobi Guvuya Pamoja Declaration calling on the need to transcend the COVID-19 pandemic through global solidarity. I also recently hosted the inaugural African CARICOM Summit, during which we reestablished the critical need for peoples of African descent to strengthen our economic and political linkages. It was a historic and proud moment for me personally to be part of the great legacy of the Pan-Africanist agenda globally. What ties these events and others that I have participated in during the last year is the collective conviction that the global system is not working well for all our people and all our regions. The unequal trade and investment patterns, the outflows of illicit finance and inflows of illicit small arms and light weapons, the extraction versus production mentality are all escalating global inequality, fragility, conflict, and violence. Many of the tools at our disposal to deal with these challenges are not living up to their promise. One such core tool is the United Nations Security Council, in which Kenya has been elected an active member since the beginning of this year. In October of 2021, Kenya will assume the presidency of the Security Council. During that period, I will chair sev several signature events, and these include, one, how we can make an appreciation for diversity a core aim in promoting state building and pursuit of peace. The second, how small illicit arms and light weapons impact peacekeeping operations globally. And third, is how to better support and promote women peacekeepers and peace builders. Ladies and gentlemen, in many countries we are witnessing state fragility that leads to protracted crisis. This fragility is driven mainly by inability of countries to manage diversity within nations, thus offering militant and terrorist groups opportunities to create social discord, discontent and control large territories within affected countries. The tools to deal with these crises are not proving adequate. So together, we must work to improve these capabilities. The most important task 
we can undertake is to increase the competence of the states to manage both political and social diversity within their nations. Indeed, countries must do so in a way that strengthens the trust between citizens and public institutions and citizens and their leaders. I believe that the tough experiences that Kenya has had and our determination to rise above them are a good case study for other states. So, Mr. President, I am proud to lead a country that has worked hard to deepen its democracy and to entrench the rule of law, embracing all in the society, irrespective of race, color, gender, or religious affiliation. Throughout my tenure as president, I have led a nation that is marching towards the attainment of the greatness that we believe is in us. I am proud to have furthered that ambition by building bridges of unity and inclusion for all. I want every Kenyan to know and to be proud of how our nation, Kenya, is highly regarded in the community of nations. Kenyans must never forget the hand of friendship that extended to us on various times by many states seated in this General Assembly, nor what our contribution has been to the international community. And finally, Kenya must never forget those countries that are still struggling against occupation and illegal sanctions that cause suffering and undermine the human rights of people in our world. As I conclude, we offer our solidarity and commitment as a member state of the United Nations to undertake the journey to build back to recovery and to prosperity, building forward better in a multilateral system that is fair, inclusive, and effective. Mr. President, Thank you. On behalf of the General Assembly, I wish to thank the President and Commander-in-Chief of the Defence Forces of the Republic of Kenya for the statements just made. The Assembly will hear an address by His Excellency Juan Orlando Hernandez Alvarez Arado, President of the Republic of Honduras. I request protocol. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the President of the Republic of Kenya, uh, President Uhuru Kenyatta, addressing the United Nations General Assembly. 76th session uh, held uh, just this last past week. Uh, the President of Kenya had delivered a pre recorded address 
we'll take a break and uh, we'll be back uh, with our concluding segment here uh, at the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. We'll be back.
Welcome back, and uh, that was the music of Brownstone, and heard it through the grapevine. And uh, right now we want to move into our concluding segment. Uh, we'll feature Africa Live from CGTN, uh, dealing uh, with some of the most burning and pressing issues uh, taking place on the African continent and uh, throughout the international community. Let's listen in. This is CGTN. China Global Television Network. Germany votes in a watershed election to pick Angela Merkel's successor. Huawei's CFO arrives back in China to a hero's welcome following her release from Canada. And Rwandan President Paul Kagame calls for support in the fight against insurgents in Mozambique. Hello and a very warm welcome to Africa Live on CGTN. I'm Lindim Tongana in Nairobi. Also ahead this hour. In business, the UN report shows a fifth of Nigeria's workers lost their jobs as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And in sports, Alexander Yusek stuns Anthony Joshua to become the new unified world heavyweight boxing champion. In our top story this hour, polls have opened in Germany's parliamentary election. Voters are casting ballots to elect new members of the Bundestag, the low house of parliament. They will also choose a new leader as Chancellor Angela Merkel prepares to leave office after 16 years in power. Polls suggest a close race among candidates of Merkel's ruling Conservative Alliance and the Green Party. Well, let's now take a quick look at the main political parties. Merkel's party, the Center-Right Christian Democratic Union, or CDU, has dominated German politics for years, along with its sister party, the Christian Social Union in Bavaria, or the CSU. The CDU-CSU bloc stands for low taxes, budget discipline, and conservative social values. Its members were deeply divided over Merkel's controversial open-door migrant policy in 2015. Armin Laschet is the CDU's candidate for chancellor. Laschet is also governor of North Rhine-Westphalia, German's most populous state. However, his support took a hit this summer after he was seen laughing while visiting a town devastated by the floods. The CDU's biggest rival is Germany's oldest party. The center-left Social Democratic Party, or SPD, campaigns for social infrastructure, investment, and tackling inequality. Its candidate, Olaf Scholz, the country's vice-chancellor and finance minister, is hoping to replace Merkel. Considered the most experienced of the three main contenders, Scholz has been gaining support in recent weeks. I stand for a statutory minimum wage of 12 euros, which will be introduced immediately. I stand for us getting a stable pension, and I stand for us taking all the decisions necessary in the first year of the new government to ensure that we transform to renewable energy so that we have a modern industry with good jobs that operates in a climate-neutral way. Another major party is the Greens. The left-leaning alliance cares about environmental protection and social justice. 
One of its leaders, Annalena Baerbock, saw her popularity surge early in the campaign. Her proposal to phase out the burning of fossil fuels before a 2038 target went down well with the electorate. If we continue to generate electricity from coal for 17 years, we will not get on the path to climate neutrality, and that's what this federal election is about. Setting the course now so that we can exit coal sooner and really implement the climate targets. Another party polling well is the Free Democratic Party. It stands for low tax and deregulation. They have been in collision with several past governments. And then there is the left-wing alliance, which rejects military missions abroad. It also wants to scrap its NATO membership and see huge rises in minimum wage. Meanwhile, at the other end of the spectrum is Alternative for Germany. The far-right party strongly opposes immigration and wants to reverse Germany's transition to renewable energy sources. Germany's government has been run by Merkel's CDU-CSU bloc together with the SPD for 12 of her 16 years in office. All parties say they're confident of being part of the next government, apart from the AfD, whose policies have already been rejected by the main parties. Well, let's go live now to Germany for the very latest on these elections. We're joined by Natalie Kane in Munich.、Uh, Natalie, of course,、uh, good to see you. We know that polls have opened in Germany. What is the latest as the Germans cast their ballots?、Mm-hmm. Well, polls opened, as you rightly mentioned, about four hours ago, and as you can see, there's been a steady stream of voters coming to at least this particular polling station. Which is in a local elementary school here in Munich. There's about 88,000 polling stations across the country.、Um, what we're seeing so far, the latest is that the head of the SPD, the Social Democrats,、uh, the candidate for the Social Democrats for Chancellor,、uh, Olaf Scholz, has just cast his ballot, as well as the Chancellor candidate for the CDU-CSU, Angela Merkel's Union Party. There, he has just cast his ballot in his hometown of Aachen, which is in the west of the country. Opinion polls, the latest ones leading into、uh, today's voting, shows that the centre-left Social Democrats are going to pull in around 25%, leaving Angela Merkel CDU-CSU alliance slightly lagging behind at about 22%. The Greens will be coming in slightly less than that, as far as these predictions are concerned. But what is quite interesting too is that, as of yesterday, last night. Um, some 40% of Germans, of German 60.4 million eligible voters, claim to be still undecided. And what's important about that is、uh, the Chancellor candidates、um, and their preferences for them, which could very much dictate how they vote at the polling、uh, polling stations here. And as you mentioned, Natalie, it、uh, seems as though polls are showing a fairly tight race among these candidates. What do you think are some of the key issues that could tip the scales in this election? Well, what has been quite interesting is that the the head of the CDU CSU Armin Laschet, who's got the support, the backing of Angela Merkel,、um, was leading until about July, and then he we saw some political gaffes in his campaign.、Uh, for instance, he was caught laughing behind the president、um, when the president was addressing flood victims in the west of the country.、Uh, that seemed to really affect his his voting standards. Those dipped down, and the SPD then,、uh, the center-left party, and their main candidate Olaf Scholz, seemed to take the lead. 
But in the last few days leading up to today, we've seen sort of a rebalancing there, and that has to do with Armin Lashid of the CDU, CSU, um, almost threatening that if his party is not chosen, we could see a much more leaning to the left alliance, coalition alliance coming out of these, uh, these elections. As well, Angela Merkel, despite saying she was not going to go on the campaign trail with Armin Laschet, decided to do so. So he's picked up a lot of percentage points leading into this race that makes them quite a bit closer. Um, Annalena Baderbach, she is the candidate uh, for the Green Party for Chancellor. She is running around 15%, um, but a lot of people that I've actually spoken to here this morning, at least in this district, um, seem to favor her quite substantially due to her push for uh, climate change policies and a more sort of green future for this country. So it looks like it will be quite a contested race going forward. We should get some preliminary uh, results around 3.30, see sort of what the population uh, is, is, is heading towards. But again, the polls don't close till 6, and then we'll see some exit, exit results after that. Well, thank you so much, Natalie Carney, with that, that rolling coverage of Germany's watershed election. Now, the election is a pivotal moment for Germany, and indeed Europe's largest economy, and the poll is being watched closely around the world as, as Chancellor Angela Merkel finally leaves office after 16 years in power. But what does this mean for Africa? Earlier, we spoke to Gessi, uh, Gessu Antonio Baez, the Executive Director and Chief Diplomatic Officer at Pax Tecum Global Consultancy via Zoom from Genoa, Italy, to get more perspective. I think the key thing to take into consideration is the fact that Angela Merkel's relationship and her push towards investment with Africa is unique and really unprecedented in regards to German leadership. She had a very strong desire to push investment and engagement with Africa that hasn't been seen before for her own initiative. And that's very important to indicate because there has never really been an indicator for Africa being seen as a real priority for, for German economic and even foreign policy engagement. But she really took it to the next level uh, and really made sure that it was put on the map for German relations. I mean, it's really crucial to think of this because she actually viewed it more as an economic partner and not just as, 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 as the continent next door, as a secondary, a secondary thought. We saw it in 2019 when there was the push for the major investment around a billion euros going towards Germany investing in African businesses, the creation of Africa Connect, trying to entice uh, German businesses to go and invest within the African continent and actually create businesses within there. And, but overall, if you look beyond the politics from an economic aspect and trade, it was very strong, it was very unique, and this was very much welcomed by African leaders last month in Berlin during the, uh, the compact summit that took place where they acknowledged this and particularly her particular desire for economic and and greater development on social issues within the continent. Um, and it was time for this. This shouldn't have been a surprise either. And Angela Merkel really took notice of this as there's a huge uh, African diaspora in Germany, a large German Somali community, a large German Ghanaian community. These Afro-Germans or citizens continue to engage with business within the continent and they are very much part of the German fabric. And Angela Merkel decided to really use this as a unique time to take that into consideration and see Africa as an opportunity, as do her own citizens. 
Huawei's chief financial officer, Meng Wanzhou, has arrived back in China. Meng, along with Chinese diplomats, landed in Shenzhen Saturday night on a chartered flight organized by the Chinese government. She left Canada after reaching an agreement with the United States to defer prosecution. Michael Voss reports. Meng Wanzhou received a hero's welcome on her return to China after fighting extradition to the U.S. for almost three years. Huawei's chief financial officer and daughter of the company's founder was finally released and allowed to return home. Miss Meng was detained at Vancouver Airport in December 2018 after a warrant was issued by the United States for a range of charges linked to alleged breaches of sanctions against Iran. It became a major international incident souring relations between China, Canada and the U.S. I'm finally back to my motherland. The long wait overseas was full of struggles, but after I stepped down from the airplane, I can feel the exciting warmth of my homeland. It was a relieved-looking Miss Mung who left her home Friday on her way to attend what was her final extradition hearing. With the extradition request dropped, a Canadian judge said she was free to return to China. Ms. Meng thanked everyone who'd supported her and then spoke of its impact. Over the past three years, my life has been turned upside down. It was disruptive time for me as a mother, a wife, and a company executive. But I believe every cloud has a silver lining. It really was an invaluable experience in my life. The Americans never should have started this case in the first place. President Trump used Ms. Meng as a trade pawn in negotiations with China uh, wrongfully. Under the terms of Meng Wanzhou's release, she has until the end of next year to meet the conditions set by the court at which point the U.S. will drop the threat of prosecution altogether. The hope now is that tensions could finally start to ease between China, the U.S. and Canada. Michael Voss, CGTN. The second China-Africa Economic and Trade Expo has opened in Changsha, the capital of China's Hunan province. The four-day expo is expected to attract about 176 projects in trade, investment and project contracting. Six African countries, namely Algeria, Ethiopia, Kenya, Rwanda, South Africa and Senegal are participating in the expo. Africa is expected to reap big in, uh, uh, in investment deals. A new report by China's Ministry of Commerce shows that China remained Africa's largest trading partner for 12 consecutive years by the end of 2020, despite the headwinds of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, let's get you more on this now for some perspective on what the China-Africa Trade Expo uh, means for Africa. We're now joined by Hannah Ryder, the Chief Executive Officer of Development Reimagined. She joins us uh, via Zoom from Glasgow. Uh, welcome to the program, Hannah. Um, African countries are, of course, hoping to reap big benefits uh, from the expo. Tell us a little bit about some of the African products that are being showcased at the exhibition. 
Thank you. Well, you know, Africa, of course, as you know, represents less than 4% of global trade. So any expo like this, which really provides an opportunity to showcase what African countries can do in terms of trade, is an important one and a good one. Um, as you mentioned, uh, there are a number of countries who have special exhibition halls who have been invited, um, and also a number of businesses, including my own, for example. We have a flagship called Africa Reimagined, where we are showcasing a number of products. Um, in many of the booths, you will find uh, gems, agricultural products, semi-processed, things like share butter, um, but you will also find fashion products. In our uh, booth, for instance, you'll find a number of fashion products, furniture products. It's important to remember that African countries do not just are not just sources of raw materials, but they also have um, process outputs, manufacturing outputs, and this is increasingly, um, we're hoping, is the focus of this expo. Mm, absolutely. And Hannah, we know that the theme of this year's expo is uh, new start, new opportunities, new accomplishments, and beyond lip service. What do you think then this signifies for, uh, for both African countries and China? So from an African perspective, of course, coming right now, uh, this is, you know, Trade and investment are very much part of COVID-19 economic recovery. We know that African economies are suffering significantly, not only from COVID itself, but also from lack of access to vaccines. And so as a result, um, any opportunity to, for example, earn new revenue through more trade with new partners such as China um, is going to be very important. Not only that, there is the African continental free trade area. And so that should also provide more opportunities for made-in-Africa products um, to enter other markets, including China. So this is why New Start, New Opportunity is, is a good theme. For China, I think um, this expo represents and engaging with Africa more deeply on trade represents an opportunity to diversify sources of imports to avoid reliance just on um, one particular uh, region or, um, or, 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 or types of products as well. Um, and it also represents an opportunity to be looking at and trying to envision and have a vision for the relocation of low-cost manufacturing, um, uh, labor-intensive manufacturing to lower-cost locations such as African countries. So this is it's it's significant for both sides, which is why um, that theme is a, is an important one. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Hannah Ryder, CEO of Africa Reimagined. Well, staying in China, let's now head to the eastern province of Zhejiang, where the 2021 World Internet Conference has opened in the ancient town of Wuzhen. CGTN's Su Yuting has more. Towards a new era of digital civilization, building a community with a shared future in cyberspace. This year's World Internet Conference focuses on cutting-edge technologies and offers a platform for cooperation between enterprises to drive the growth of digital economy. President Xi Jinping has sent a congratulatory letter. Currently, the world is experiencing a pandemic and profound changes unseen in a century. There's an urgent need for the international community to join hands to work with the development trend of digitization, networking and artificial intelligence, seize opportunities and cope with challenges. This year's event focuses on areas like cloud computing, big data, artificial intelligence, 5G and cyber security. 
Many attendees say the latest digital reforms in economy, society, and governance will build a new roadmap for the future development of the internet. Digitization is now taking up an important chapter in China's 14th five-year plan. I think a most crucial scenario for digitization. Its application in industries. Now we have the scenario in the networking of vehicles, industries, and smart cities. The utilization of digitization in government and industries is very important for the realization of common prosperity, as well as coping with the challenges unseen in the past century. World Internet Conference is widely regarded as the top-level internet industry event in both China and the world. As a permanent annual event hosted in Wuhan, the meeting has been held successfully for seven years since 2014, and this year it's expected to gather. More wisdom to promote global economic growth through digital innovation. Su Yuting, CGTN, Wuzhen, Zhejiang Province. Let's take a short break now. Here's what's still ahead on the program. Rwandan President Paul Kagame calls for support in the fight against Mozambique insurgents. And a new report links thousands of U.S. coronavirus cases. To wildfires. Africa is a continent of diversity, with varied climates and enchanting geography, and a people so distinct, but with a shared enduring spirit. We are at the heart of the continent. To bring you the untold story, let's have a look. We celebrate Africa as it shapes its own destiny. I've been sure she turned in Cairo. Africa Live. Find your voice. Rwandan troops cannot stay in Mozambique's Cabo Delgado forever, says Rwanda's president Paul Kagame. Rwandan troops arrived in Mozambique in July on a mission that was initially meant to last three months, but Kagame has said it will be up to Mozambique to determine how long Rwandan troops should stay. Rwandan and Mozambican troops have been recapturing areas from Islamist militants. Since July, the insurgency, which has gained in strength since 2017, has displaced almost 750,000 people. Much as we cannot be here forever, I think primarily the problem we are dealing with、uh, with our friends of Mozambique cannot stay here forever too. So, as we solve the problem, which uh, uh, Solidified this、uh, cooperation. We, we are definitely working together. The commander of the Libyan National Army, Khalifa Haftar, has announced a temporary end to his military leadership. An interim replacement will lead the forces until December 24th, the date set for Libya's general election. The move paves the way for Haftar to run for president. Here's Adel El Mahri with more. 
Khalifa Haftar appointed an interim new commander to the Libyan National Army who will temporarily fill in his place until December 24. That's the UN announced date to hold Libya's elections. Haftar's move fulfilled a presidential candidacy requirement in a law that the Eastern-based parliament issued last week. The law states that military officers can run for president if they've been off duty for at least three months. By suspending his role in the LNA instead of resigning means that he intends to return to his position in case he fails to win the presidential elections or even if the elections are postponed or cancelled for any reason. All of this, however, is based only on the law which the parliament issued. The eastern-based parliament is an ally to Khalifa Haftar. Critics say their election law was tailored to enable the general to run. The commander of the LNA has a U.S. citizenship besides his Libyan. The parliament's law does not prevent dual nationals from running for president. Haftar's rivals in the Western High Council of State, on the other hand, have recently released a different legislation that would ban both dual nationals and military officers who were in their posts within less than two years from running. I think Mashal Khalifa Haftar's chances to win are not small. He has a strong base of supporters in eastern Libya where he managed to achieve a great deal of stability and has managed to unite the army and militias there. While other possible candidates, especially those in western Libya, could be challenging one another and therefore western votes could split, that encourages him to get prepared for running, although the magnitude of competition is not yet clear. The LNA controls Libya's entire eastern region and most of the south. Yet the majority of the country's population live in the western region where the capital Tripoli stands. Khalifa Haftar has not made an official announcement about his candidacy and he is not expected to do so soon. The elections authority is yet to announce the regulations for campaigning and the LNA commander will not be taking any chances that could jeopardize his candidacy. Adel Mahroui, CGTN, Cairo. To the United States now, a Harvard report says thousands of U.S. coronavirus infections last year might be attributable to smoke from wildfires. Air pollution specifically may be to blame. Nevada's Desert Research Institute published similar findings. CGTN's Edith Tianzin spoke with one of these scientists there about the correlation. As the U.S. struggled through the pandemic last year, Several western states were also grappling with wildfires. And scientists at Nevada's Desert Research Institute observed the times of increased pollution from wildfires coinciding with surges in COVID-19 infections in the city of Reno. What we found, you know, was that, you know, following, you know, a large spike in a particular matter, we would see, you know, a spike in the uh, number of uh, cases testing positive that was kind of above and beyond, you know, just the general trend of the pandemic. Um, and so we found that to be uh, rather convincing uh, in terms of just, okay, there appears to be an association here. And that wasn't an isolated case. A similar study of other Western states by Harvard University also found a correlation between wildfire smoke pollutants and surges of COVID-19 cases. Um, but another study that was published shortly after ours was looking at the states of Washington, Oregon, and California. I believe they looked at 92 different counties 
uh, in those states. And, you know, by and large, you know, I saw a positive association between COVID-19 and the wildfires in most of those counties. Initially, it was theorized this might be the result of weakening immune systems in the face of worsening air quality, but further study pointed instead to the fine particulate matter produced by wildfires, also known as PM2.5. Daniel Kieser and his colleagues' research suggests that PM2.5 could be a carrier for the virus. Viral particles and bacterial particles have been found on PM2.5 before. Uh, I believe there was a study in Italy early on that found COVID-19 RNA um, that was on the particulate matter in the air, and that was urban particulate matter. Um, and so it seems possible that you know we're, we might also be seeing um, the virus essentially riding on the particulate matter from the wildfires in the air and getting inhaled into lungs that way. Hundreds of thousands of people have been forced to flee their homes in the face of devastating wildfires both this year and last. In doing so, many feel extra vulnerable to the virus as practicing safety measures is not easy in times of crises. I mean, what can you do? I mean, it's a situation where um, you can't really avoid it. With your animals and you've got people around, it's really hard to avoid everybody. So, yeah, it's really, really hard. And it turns out many more were likely exposed to coronavirus just by breathing air polluted by the fire smoke. The revelation coming as this year's wildfires continue to threaten western states and the pandemic is far from over. It is Tianshan, CGTN, Los Angeles. To Tunisia now, where the country's capital city, Tunis, is hosting its first extreme food challenge. A young Tunisian woman faces up against an adult Algerian participant. The challengers have to eat more than one meter of pizza and makhloub food. The participation of a woman is unprecedented in North Africa. Bilal Furati is the organizer of the food challenge in Tunisia. The snack bar manager says the event aims to export the image of Tunisian snacks and its street food culture. The objective of the food challenge is the marketing of Tunisian street food, like the one-meter stuffed baguette, the one-meter pizza, the one-meter sandwich, and the rocket meter. Many people are following us on social media. It's not only a commercial and marketing goal. We want the whole world to discover the street food culture in Tunisia. Let's make our snack international. Algerian Selim is ranked first in his country and 13th in the world in extreme food challenges. He has won several international titles in more than 30 countries. The Guinness Book of World Records holder is an expert in terms of speed, food quantity and quality. This event in Tunis is exceptional. In my next challenge, I will face a Chinese female participant and then one from America and another one from New Zealand. In my past records, I ate an entire roast lamb weighing 32 kilos in 37 minutes, 29 roasted chicken and 500 boiled eggs. Tunisian champion Raida Mortari lost her battle against Selim. The 19-year-old law student says even though the defeat, she learned so much from this exceptional experience. I was not expecting to win this face-to-face -face with Salim, who's a legend. I'm proud of my performance and participation. Experience is important. The winner is 38, while I'm just 19. I'm a beginner, and I'll train hard to win the next food challenge here or in Algeria and enter the Guinness Book of Records.
The organizers of the food challenge have shown the latest creations in terms of street food and recipe. Their objective is to spread the culture of healthy street food in North Africa. The first Tunisian-Algerian food challenge also aims to sensitize consumers about the problem of food waste in modern society. People here are hopeful that the next challenge will host participants from Morocco, Libya and Mauritania. Adnan Shawashi, CGTN, Tunis. Let's take a short break. Your business news up next. Coming up, a UN report shows a fifth of Nigeria's workers lost their jobs as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's taken me completely out of my depth, but at the same time it's exciting. It's new, it's different, it's a challenge. It's really exciting. There's more to this place than just glorious landscapes. There's more to it than just a table mountain or glorious, endless salt flats. There's more to it than countries that are home to some of the deepest minds in the world. There is so much more to this place, even if it is home to some of the finest diamonds on the planet. It is the sheer diversity by the people who call South Africa home and the relentless drive to make it a better place and make it so special. And we know that because this too is home. No one knows South Africa like we do. CGTN, see the difference. We start your business news in Sudan, where protesters in the country's east have shut down a pipeline that carries oil to the capital Khartoum. The demonstrators are protesting against poor political and economic conditions in the region. The Ministry of Energy and Oil has said there is enough oil to sustain the country for 10 days. The ministry also says that the refinery in Khartoum producing fuel for domestic consumption is still operational. Protesters from the Beja tribe from eastern South Sudan are decrying poor political and economic conditions in the region. 
Nigeria has raised another $4 billion through Eurobonds. The West African nation issued the debt in tranches of three tenors. It raised $1.25 billion for seven years at a yield of 6.125% and sold a 12-year bond at 7.375% to fetch $1.5 billion. A 30-year tranche of $1.25 billion was sold at 8.25%. The notice set September 28 for the bond settlement, which will be listed on the London and Nigerian stock exchanges. The Eurobonds are part of Africa's biggest economy's plan to raise about $5.71 billion in external financing to help fund its spending in 2021 and to also partly finance its $5.6 trillion Naira deficit. While staying in Nigeria, a new report by the United Nations reveals that a fifth of the country's workers lost their jobs as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, which hit Africa's most populous nation last year. Nigeria was plunged into its deepest recession in over four decades, which saw its economy shrink by 6.1% and 3.6% respectively in the final two quarters of 2020. With more details, here's CGTN's Phil Ehaza. Kenneth Enebuike has been surfing the internet in search of a job. He says he's been out of work for seven months after losing his sales rep position at a gadget store last year during the lockdown. As a result of the pandemic, um, the company couldn't you know, cope and they had to do a lot of downsizing. They had to lay off staffs and um, it affected me, you know, and um, trying to get another job has been proving very, very difficult. A report by the United Nations Development Programme in collaboration with Nigeria's Bureau of Statistics shows that 20% of Nigeria's 65 billion workforce lost their jobs last year. Last year, the pandemic triggered a lockdown for about six months, which saw most businesses closed for the whole period. According to the report, not many business owners were able to reopen even after the restrictions were lifted due to operational challenges and a huge loss in revenue. A lot of businesses lost revenue. They weren't making enough money, right? So when people aren't making enough money, the natural thing to do in administration is to cut costs. And the people who suffer the most you know, of these kinds of action are the people who work there. So when businesses can't fly, airlines can't fly, when cinemas can't show movies, when food sellers can't sell food to people, they sack people. According to the World Bank, Nigeria's current unemployment crisis is the worst in the nation's history. Between 2010 and 2020, the unemployment rate in Nigeria rose fivefold, from 6.4% in 2010 to 33.3% in 2020. Experts say the government needs to step up its efforts of stabilizing the economy for more people to be gainfully employed. When there is food, people can actually get into the market. It's a supply chain. When there's people in the market, people can actually transport them. These are macro employment opportunities. And this is where the majority of Nigerians are employed, on the grassroots level. right? So when you solve very basic infrastructural and economic challenges, you create a lot of employment. And Nigerians are not asking for much. We're only saying, solve these things, we'll fix the rest ourselves. In mid-September, the President Buhari administration launched a Youth Employment Action Plan aimed at creating about 3.7 million jobs annually. The hope is that the likes of Kenneth will be able to take up such opportunities and become employed once again. Phil Ihaza, CGTN, 
Abuja. In South Africa, a Johannesburg High Court judgment released recently states that the South African Mining Charter is a policy document. It further adds that the continuing consequences of previous black economic empowerment deals should be recognized and that the specific challenged provisions in the document should be removed. Angela Coppola tells us more. The charter became the subject of a legal battle between the Minerals and Energy Department and the Minerals Council. Well, obviously, it's very positive for the mining industry and a uh, significant victory for the Minerals Council in this uh, long, long outstanding litigation with the Department of Resources and Energy. One of the key rulings was around the legal standing of the Charter. We've always held the view that the Mining Charter is a critical document for us as a mining industry, but it is a policy, it is a guideline. Um, essentially for the mining right holder, but it is not subordinate or primary legislation. And so the court has basically confirmed that for us. The court found that successive minerals ministers hadn't been using the charter correctly. The minister can't use the mining charter to make law, which is what the government have been doing, or the Department of Mineral Resources have been doing for the last 10 years. Another aspect that has been clarified by the court is the once empowered, always empowered component of the Charter, specifically related to renewals and transfers of mining rights. We also have continuing consequences of transactions when in the, in the context of a renewal and a transfer. So that was absolutely critical. And so it actually now confirms it for existing and new order rights. So People know what they have to do in order to, to comply with the BE um, requirements of investing in a South African context. The Department of Mineral Resources and Energy issued a test statement saying that they were reviewing the judgment. Obviously, you know, the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy will no doubt seek leave to appeal this decision, but it's a very carefully uh, written judgment and um, I think it's going to be difficult for the department to succeed on appeal, even all the way to the Constitutional Court, because the court has really modeled and made its judgment on the interpretation of statutes, on public law principles, on South African constitutional law. Potential investors now have more certainty in terms of the mineral resources sector in South Africa. It now depends on what the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy is going to do and whether it's going to appeal this latest ruling or not. I'm Angelo Coppola for CGTN in Johannesburg, South Africa. Tunisia's industrial production rose 28% in the second quarter of 2021 compared to the same period last year. Now, according to the country's state-run statistics agency, the jump in production was boosted by increased activity in the mining sector, agriculture, textile and electrical industries after a pandemic-induced slump last year. CGTN's Adnan Chouachi reports from Tunis. The National Institute of Statistics in Tunisia recorded a positive quarterly evolution. Recent data has shown a slight increase in industrial production by 0.1% in second quarter of 2021, compared to the first quarter of the current year. Analysts explained that this was due to the rise in the mining sector production, which rose 33%. Industrial production is up for manufacturing industries and non-manufacturing industries. This is linked to the resumption of activity, especially for the hydrocarbon sector. 
The positive results of this sector have a direct impact on the performance and the added value of the industrial sector. According to the Agency for the Promotion of Industry and Innovation, exports of manufacturing industries have increased by 28.2% to some $7 billion in the first half of 2021. That's from 5.7 billion during the same period in 2020. Exports of manufacturing industries have also increased because the industry is recovering in Europe, which is Tunisia's first export market. As the pandemic wanes, the economy is recovering. Tunisian president held a meeting with representatives of the country's Confederation of Industry, Trade and Handicrafts and reassured them of his government's support in order to boost their industrial production and exports. I thank all the brave businessmen and women who are doing a great job at this critical period to redress the economy and improve the situation. We are standing by their side in this national effort. According to the Ministry of Industry, Energy and Mines, most manufacturing industries in Tunisia saw growth ranging from 14 to 81 percent this year after the reopening of the economy following last year's pandemic-led lockdown. The Agency for the Promotion of Industry and Innovation has reported that investments in the industrial sector have decreased by 20.5% at the end of the first half of 2021. The value of the reported industrial investments amounted to $480 million at the end of August of this year against $589 million during the same period of 2020. Abdel Shawishi, CGTN, Tunis. Heading back to South Africa, the country's main lending rate remains at a historic low of 3.5%. The Reserve Bank kept the repo rate unchanged at its monetary policy meeting last week, despite a rise in inflation. The central bank says the move will support an economy that is still recovering from the impact of COVID-19 and the riots in July. Sumitra Naidu tells us more. The Reserve Bank's Monetary Policy Committee members were unanimous in their decision to keep rates on hold. The repo rate has been at a historical low of 3.5% for 14 months. The decision was well received despite higher inflation numbers. The recent inflation rate was up, but that's because of historical issues. I mean, a year ago, um, the oil price was pretty low. We were still still in the throes of the pandemic, we're still coming out of it. So I think whatever increases we have seen, I think we're very much anticipating that even includes food prices. Consumer inflation came in at 4.9% in August. This was slightly higher than July's increase of 4.6% and now closer to the upper end of the Reserve Bank's 3 to 6% target band. This is the fourth consecutive month where the annual increase has been higher than the 4.5% midpoint of the Reserve Bank's monetary policy target range. Transport was the largest contributor to both the annual and monthly CPI readings in August, increasing by 9.9% annually and 2.2% monthly. South African petrol prices reached their highest level ever in August 2021. The cost of living in South Africa is rising. Food, fuel and utilities are more expensive. The Reserve Bank has been delaying a rate hike to support cash-strapped consumers. The poor state of the economy was compounded by the rioting in July. The damages cost an estimated $1.7 billion.
the big worry is that when some businesses close, sometimes they never open again. So you get a permanent loss. It's not a matter of, of uh, reopening some of those shops that were looted. I think some businesses just fail to, to reopen completely. Heavily indebted South Africans have welcomed the Reserve Bank's accommodative stance, but have been cautioned to prepare for higher rates. The central bank expects to start hiking rates at its next meeting in November. Sumitra Nadu, CGTN, Johannesburg, South Africa. Sports News up next on Africa Live. Coming up, Alexander Yusik stuns Anthony Joshua to become the new unified world heavyweight boxing champion. How would you create your legend? On the field. On the tracks. In the arenas of Africa. Were you born to be a player? Could this moment be yours? Sports team, find your game. You're watching breaking news. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.